Welcome to the Empowered Eating and Living Podcast, where we dive into your inner world to explore all of the psychological, emotional, energetic, and spiritual components that may be influencing your struggle with food and eating. I'm your host, Sarah Emily Spears, a trained psychotherapist and energy worker who recovered from my own eating disorder. And now I help women just like you do the inner work to address the real issues keeping you stuck in your problematic eating patterns. Because I assure you, your problem with food is about way more than food. So join me and guest experts as we discuss the psychology of eating and healing and empower you with tangible steps you can take today to begin to improve your relationship with food and yourself from a place of true nourishment and care. Kate Duffy is a family addiction expert, interventionist, and coach. She's a catalyst for change who's been inspiring recovery and healing since she got sober in 2013. After facing and overcoming her own battle with substance abuse, Kate saw and felt the missing pieces at the recovery initiative tipping point. She has since made it her life's mission to bring families into the recovery conversation. Through hundreds of interventions, Kate has created a proven family recovery model where families are empowered to rise above the frequency of addiction. When families heal, their loved ones can too. Kate founded Tipping Point Recovery Incorporated and created Recovery Conversations, a breakthrough program that takes a holistic view of the individual within the family system. She's now sharing her program nationally so she can help more individuals and their families to recover and heal. In this conversation, Kate and I explore the parallels and differences between eating disorder and substance use recovery or any form of addiction. Whether you or someone you know feels addicted to food or to substances, this is a conversation you're not going to want to miss. Hi, Kate. Welcome. Hi, Sarah. Thank you. I'm glad to be with you. Me too. And I'm really looking forward to this conversation. First of all, you and I know each other in a pretty fun way. We were both members of a women's entrepreneur group. And then my sister became both of our assistants. So we have this beautiful thread that that ties us together and we work on different types of addiction and healing and recovery work. And your area of specialty is really with substance abuse and addiction. And you have a beautiful business called Tipping Point Recovery. And I'm wondering if you can just start by sharing a bit about your work and your passion and mission with Tipping Point. Yeah, I will. I first want to acknowledge what you just said, which was the thread that we have. I just adore your sister. And I think I found her by mistake, which probably is a good segue because Tipping Point Recovery was founded by mistake. But um, I love that I have your sister on our team. She's so important to us. And so, yeah, I feel that share with you so much. So Tipping Point Recovery started by mistake. I was a couple of years sober and I took a job as an emergency room recovery coach. I would go to the ER every time someone had a non-fatal overdose, which was every day at the time. And it was back in 2015. And over this three-year period, I discovered three gaping holes, three major cracks in the way the world responds to and treats um, drug and alcohol addiction. And I couldn't ignore it uh, over those few years, the, what was being presented to me, I think of as memos from the universe for opportunity. Um, I couldn't ignore. I mean, I'll tell you what those three things were. I mean, people, medical, civic community, the, the world trying to engage someone with drug or alcohol addiction in a way that the actual ways we try to engage because of how the illness shows up doesn't work. I can, I'll expand more probably as we get going, but basically we're asking someone to do a thing that their illness prevents them from doing. Right. And number two, expecting them without the skills that they need because their disease prevents them from having this to navigate in this fractured system that literally has probably a dozen big transitions in the first 30 days. So really compromised person, emotionally, physically, spiritually, mentally, et cetera. And there's all these places at which we can scoot right off the track. 
um, like at least a dozen between an ER visit and a 30 day sobriety um, celebration. And then the third and really most important is a family completely in the dark around this misunderstood disease. So these things became really prevalent to me and I started working in different ways throughout this two and three year period that got us some really kind of phenomenal results. And then we had, I had to, I had to do what we're doing. Yeah. Wow. It's so remarkable. A, how this mistake turns into such a divinely led and sort of orchestrated blessing. And it's also fascinating that all of those sort of holes that you identified, it feels like for me, what's overlapping is this misunderstanding of how the illness impacts an individual's ability to function, how we would perceive to be like normal and how our medical system and approach to healing and treatment is not set up to actually meet a person where they're at. No, no, not at all. And how that showed up just in a really practical way in the ER was as a peer, I was there to greet a person who had just experienced pretty much death and revived by Narcan, you know, the reversible um, overdose medication and offer them help. And the way they were doing it was saying, do you want help? And what I knew about that person behind the curtain that the doctors and nurses really didn't know unless they were actual recovering people themselves was, of course, that person wants help. But how and when and why and where is, is the difference, right? It's not right now in the, what you think as the doctor they might want. So no doesn't mean no. And when I asked them to change the question they were asking these individuals, we went from 10% engagement to 100% engagement. And what was the reframe? The question was, would you like to speak to a recovering addict? And I would even tell the nurses, if they hesitate, then just say, there's an addict here. She really wants to talk to you. No, one of us will never deny another one of us ever. Even if we don't want to get better, we will not deny each other. It's like a club. I bet you feel the same. Totally. It's, I, there's something about people who get it that is unlike trying to explain yourself to the people who don't. And one reason I'm really excited to have this conversation is because there are so many parallels with our communities, whether somebody is struggling with an addiction to substances or to food, right? Like the, the struggle, you can feel so alone in it and like no one gets you. And when you feel like you're alone in it, for me especially, it was like, where do I turn to to find the right help or support? And so you can feel really lost and isolated and my family isn't going to understand. And I certainly don't want my friends to know. And then you end up continuing to suffer by yourself for years and years and years because yeah, it's like, I, I don't think anybody else will get it. Right. Right. And think about it in order to even speak to anyone about it, we have to face it. And, that's part of the problem that we're struggling with and why we're using substances or food to self-medicate because facing things is hard. So here's a person who has trouble facing things and is expected to not only face these things, but head on straight through all the cracks and holes, keep going, charge along. <laughs> it's like, what? I literally was, I got sober at 50 years old. And I, when I, took this job I felt like I was just plopped I felt so naive I really thought we had a better handle on things in the world and I, I literally remember looking around thinking is this real is this really how we're addressing mental health and 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 substance use this makes no sense and what a waste of time and money I kept looking at the emergency workers thinking, so wait, you do this every day and you go home and then you come back and you do it again. And the same thing happens. People just keep leaving. 
<laughs> how is this? Yeah. How? And I, I know I've heard a lot of people complain about our healthcare system because a lot of people will accuse it of being a system meant to keep you sick, not actually meant to help you heal. And when I was working in eating disorder work, when I first got, got started as a therapist, I was finding myself also frustrated by the whole system and the way insurance worked and how we were supporting patients and families. And I, when you look at the recovery stats for eating disorders, it's alarming and shocking how low it is and how high relapse rate are. And I'm thinking, this is the best we can do. Like there's gotta be, there's so much room for improvement. And if we're truly committed as mental health professionals to help people, like I've felt so lit up and committed to find ways to improve upon like sort of what the standard way of, of helping people was. Well, something I learned about myself in that job is through the frustration, I suddenly one day said, I get it. I can't work in the problem. And this is a problem. And I realized my, my, there was an expiration date on that job because I was working in the problem. And I thought, even if I don't find a solution, I have to go find a solution. And the searching for a solution is better for me. You know, it's, it just reminded me of an analogy you take a longer route because of less traffic and it's going to take you longer. But isn't that for me, that's often a better route driving because rather than just sitting and not knowing when it's going to end. And that is literally my approach to life. And once I learned that about myself, I was able to say, I'm going to go search for the problem, search for a solution and keep searching. Absolutely. Until you land upon something that seems to click or work. Yeah. And I also want to circle back to something you said about if the way you asked the question, do you want help? And, you know, there was a 10% success rate and people saying yes. And it's interesting because I think a stereotype with addiction is people say, well, you know, they have to want to help themselves. And you're saying, well, everybody wants help. Like no one wants to be stuck in that necessarily. So I'm curious what your response would be to people who say that or believe, well, they have to want to help themselves. I love that you're asking me that because I still see it daily. I see it in our own community, the statement, well, I guess he has to want it. And I see it in the industry. So my, my, my take on this is we're all complicit in continuing. That is probably our number one barrier to helping people is that belief. And so here's what I, was, here's what I want to say to it. It's in part true because what's true about it is what people are saying is they can't make someone do something. Totally get it. But what I learned in my recovery myself, as well as watching, you know, thousands of others is the wanting it comes once you have it. More wanting it comes as you get it. And let's just break that down. What is it? What are we talking about? He has to want it. It is what? Living. He has to care about himself. She has to care about herself. Well, if you're shooting a needle in your arm with heroin or fentanyl, you don't care about yourself. That's the problem. So what we actually need to want it, we don't yet have until we get it. I wish for one thing to stop and it would be that statement. It is. It freezes families and it freezes the alcoholic and to not take action. And so if anyone's breathing, they want it because they could easily kill themselves. And we, we usually want to, and we're just a little afraid, but that's what we're doing on a daily basis. We're poisoning ourselves with alcohol, getting behind a wheel and driving. I mean, those are passive suicide behaviors. And so it isn't about us wanting it. It's about us being surrounded by people to help us want it a little bit so that we can learn to want it more. That makes sense. Absolutely. And I could also see how the statement, oh, well, you have to want it could, it puts all the pressure on that person and could easily reinforce the internal belief of, well, what's wrong with me or see, like, I'm no good. I'm worthless. I'm broken. And that is only perpetuating the not loving and caring for self, which is reinforcing the behavior in the first place. Something was happening when I started to engage all these individuals, which came up as a result of changing the question. 
something was happening over the next few weeks. Cause, because when I, when I said I was engaging all these people, it didn't mean that they were leaving, running off to treatment. They were talking to me. They were calling me back the next day or texting me or meeting me for coffee or, or a meeting. And it took a few weeks with many people to build that trust, to build a relationship. And something that was happening to me that I didn't understand, I was actually creating to happen. And it was frequently people would say, can you talk to my family? Now, if you work in the field of addiction and recovery, people don't ask that. People don't go to treatment and say, I want to sign a release so my family can talk to you like at all, because we're protecting our disease. So when I started getting asked this question over and over, I actually had the CEO of a treatment center ask me to train his clinical team on why so many people were asking me that. And I just didn't see anything unusual about it at first, but then I had to really start to look into, oh yeah, why are they asking me that? And it's because, because I knew how trapped they were because I was just there. And I knew someone was enabling something unbeknownst to maybe anyone or sometimes very well known by everyone. I knew that if you are a a user and you have a home and you have meals and you have a car paid for and you, then someone's supporting this habit to continue usually. And so maybe a little manipulative, but I would start to say to these people I was engaging, I don't know about you, but I lied to my family all the time. And they would say, me too, straight up. That's what we do. And that would break open. They would literally suddenly say, if you don't talk to my mom, I'm going to die. Like I didn't go at them. Who's helping you or who, right. I didn't go at it. I went around it. And I remember calling a mentor saying, is it okay that I'm doing this? Because it felt a little sneaky because I, I was on the other side of the addiction. And it's funny, not really funny, but it's humorous that when we're helping families, often the person that is struggling learns about tipping point because the family's talking about me or our team or tipping point. And I have had people say, you're a traitor. (laughs) What are you doing? And I've said, yeah, I'm working on behalf of your wellness, not your sickness. And when you get better, you're going to want to work here and teach this stuff to parents and families too, because it's pretty empowering to be able to lift the veil. But I realized yeah. that was why engaging so many families is because I know what to say to relate and connect, right? And the family piece is so important in healing. I think mental health across the board, one of my personal opinions is that our very hyper independent culture and the disconnections that we're having with technology and we're lacking the collective community family environment that we all need like fundamentally as human beings it's a basic need and so when we are approaching a lot of times through the more you know western lens recovery it's again on the individual but when you pull in family and safety and you repair those relationships to me that is powerfully healing and absolutely a missing piece to recovery. And so I'm curious from your experience, like what role the family has been playing in almost being like a, an essential foundation for this work. So I'll be really curious to hear how, if at all, this is similar with your communities and families. First, I want to speak to the statements you're making about how vital community is. And we, you're right, just in general, as a society, we don't have community the way we did. And we have a saying in recovery that we say, no one recovers alone ever. I mean, the principles of AA, which is really a very successful, long-term, been around for a long time program, started with two people. And it was in the two people talking that they realized they were recovering. So it literally began because someone spoke to someone else and they spoke back. And so it's prime, it's fundamental in recovery from alcohol and drug addiction that no one recovers alone. It's just a fact. And, but when you bring up family, it's interesting as you were saying that 
the thoughts were coming to my mind of our families, I'm generalizing, but an addict's family, someone we want to stay far away from because we have destroyed, in most cases, shredded with our words, with our actions, with our needs, with our lying and manipulating. And, and so it's not a place that we want to recover in the family. And the family, and again, generalizing, but there's, a, there's so much pain and hurt. So it isn't, I think a lot of, I wonder if a lot of the weight reasons for years, we've not even helped families is because people don't even know where to begin. There's so much pain there and tension. And I hear so often, Oh, I'm done. Or a mom will call and say, I want help from my son, but my, his sister and her dad, they're done. I always do this. There's a lot of people that just decide they're done. And I say, kudos to you, because that means you're taking care of yourself. There is a better way to do that without alienating someone, but that's a boundary. And I'll never, you know, criticize that. So what's, what we like to do is recover the family. And that's the family we want to be around the individual. And I mean, that's a big word, right? There's a lot to say about that, but how important is family? enormously important, but a sick family system with a sick individual doesn't make for recovery. It makes for more discourse, Sickness. right? Right. It, exactly. Um, I've heard someone say in the halls, you know, in, of the fellowship AA and others, if we're, someone said once two sickies don't make a welly, you know, if you're like trying to partner up with a person in your early recovery, two sickies don't make a welly. But yeah, that, so intention behind the family supporting addiction is what we're shooting for, is what we're really promoting is show up in a whole new way. And I can see how important it would be that you have a skilled facilitator like yourself who understands these complicated family dynamics and can navigate those conversations so that it does lead to the repair and recovery of the family and not continue to essentially drive a wedge into the family. Right. Right. Because while family cannot make someone drink or can make, not make someone not drink if they're going to, we do as family contribute to the overall pattern of the cycle continuing. And it is a systemic, um, you know, a family system issue. Yeah. And I find at least with eating disorders, a lot of the root, underlying issues resulted from either family traumas or attachment wounds, or not even if they were big traumas, but just minor moments throughout childhood that created beliefs or a sense of not, not mattering or not being loved. And so if a lot of the wounds are created in the family, ideally, the, the most optimal healing option would be to create the repair in the family, although that isn't always possible for every person, you know, and so recovery might look different depending on what the actual family circumstances are. Um, but with eating disorders, as you were speaking, I realized it's slightly different in that, well, a lot of times families are brought in for the recovery when it's a child or teen who's struggling because they're in the home. But once you um, are an adult struggling with an eating disorder, a lot of times that person is doing it solo and they don't want anybody in their family involved because no one in their family even knows. And perhaps unlike substances, it's easy to hide. No one can really tell, oh, you're intoxicated. You can't really tell when somebody has maybe binged or purged or restricted all day, it's really, really hard to spot unless somebody's severely underweight. And so because of that shame and secrecy, they take it on as something they do by themselves. And my approach has been, well, let's create a community of other beings who are going through this alone. So you have at least a community and support that way if you're not willing yet to bring in family support. But really hearing you talk, I'm realizing that really is an essential piece. Like it seems like it's just so important. Yeah. I mean, I'll give you an example. <clears throat> I'm working with a mom and a dad and their daughter, who's I would say maybe 30. And the daughter just had 30 days of treatment. And so I met with the three of them 
after she left treatment. She was in her own apartment, but they were staying with her for a couple of days. And the purpose of the meeting was the mom called the meeting. Can we meet? Because I'm really scared to leave her. So with her, we got to have the mom express her fear. If I leave, what if she drinks? And so, like you said, a skilled facilitator could really help the young daughter hear her mom. I could also say to the mom in front of the daughter, that's your stuff, not hers. And so we want you to work on that, but we want you to work on it over here in your meeting. It's great to express in front of her, but we want her to not carry your worry, right? So we we unpacked a lot. And the mom looked at me at one point and said, I thought I liked you. And now I don't know that I do. And we all laughed. And what she was saying was, oh, I have some stuff to do too. And oh, there's some stuff on me. But she meant it in a jesty way. And it allowed the daughter to not take it all on, still be said. So it is critical. But what I'm a big proponent of is what's yours and what's not yours. And take yours over here and leave yours. And so likewise, I would say to somebody, I will say there's a lot of secrecy with drug and alcohol initially until it can't be hidden, right? Like, you know, I mean, for me, for years, no one knew. Even in the end, when I got sober, so many people were fooled because we're masters. Our disease wants all of us to just keep it hidden. That's the idea. And so that's what I like to teach people is the addiction's winning here when we're not talking about this. The person's not winning. The family's not winning. The disease is winning. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. The silence alone means no progress, no change can happen. There's no 0% chance of anything shifting if we're not talking about it. I'm curious what, you know, you pointed to a lack of caring for self or valuing self as one of the factors driving the behavior. Do you see some commonalities around maybe what's at the core or some of the underlying issues that lead someone to develop a substance addiction? Yeah. I mean, you mentioned a couple, um, I'll just, I'll add on, but often trauma. And for me personally, I used to think trauma meant a war trauma was, it had to be really big and really obvious. And it was really helpful for me to learn in my forties, but that's not the case. And most of us, if we were raised by human beings have experienced trauma of some sort, right? So a lot of, a lot of trauma, um, a lot of adverse childhood um, experiences and loss is a big one, a feeling of abandonment or actual loss. Um, certainly there's a genetic component and it, it is, um, it is highly, um, what's the word I want Hereditary? Yeah. Uh, you know, what is breast cancer? It's highly hereditary, but it's really small compared to addictions, like 50%. If you are, here's, here's the big one. If you are the child of, let's say two recovering alcoholics, you have about a 75% chance of becoming an alcoholic. Wow. You protect your brain prior to it being developed, meaning no drinking and drugging up till 25, really protecting your brain, which how many people do that in our culture? Then you, that drops to like 10%. Wow. Yeah. It's It's so alarming how little prevention we do around these conditions and how life-changing it could be if we as a culture prioritize more more prevention. Yeah, it may be 20, but it's way low, way lower. And I can't remember the exact percentage, but it's much lower. And yes, that's about talking about it, right? And that's a big culture shift. Just, I met someone the other day who was telling me, I grew up in a home where whenever the parents were stressed, we would go work out and go for a walk. <laughs> I said, Oh, I work. I grew up in a home where we would drink. You poured a drink when you were stressed. So that's a simple one, right? What are children seeing? This is just on the thread of prevention. What are children seeing? Um, honey, I'll be right with you to help you with your homework. I'm really stressed out. I just got to pour a drink or I'm really stressed out from my day. I'm going to do a quick 15 minute meditation and then I'll come help you with the homework. Right. So what was modeled 
in the right. family can also shape the behaviors. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I will say that if you went to, you know, recovering meetings and listen to people share thousands that I have, you hear often, I didn't feel like myself in my body as a young person. And the first time I had that drink at 12 or 14 or 11, this warmth went over my whole body and I knew I was home. I knew I was safe. There's a bit, there's this dopamine release or this. And so therein lies the beginning. It's It's a seeking that sense of safety and warmth and comfort. Yeah. Yeah. Which is exactly what we see with food. Food is, there's such an emotional attachment to food as the source of comfort. And for children who maybe don't yet have access to alcohol, they really learn at a very young age that when I'm upset or alone or scared, ooh, this feels better. Let me go get another cookie. And and it starts to create this literally brain attachment to food as a substance beyond something to nourish the body, but something to comfort and become the depended upon object for safety instead of the parents or the family, because it just almost got miswired. (laughs) There's a complete correlation there. And I'll just share with you personally, once I recovered from alcohol, I started to eat. And I started to gain weight. And I remember thinking I should be losing weight. I stopped drinking all that alcohol and I gained weight continuously, 50, 60 pounds. And then I discovered a raging sugar addiction that actually got as bad for me as in many ways, not completely as it did with alcohol, the justifying it's only a pint, you know, going out at nine o'clock for a pint of ice cream and feeling sick, finishing it and wanting and to getting more anyway. And I was like, oh my God, this is the same. And I didn't get sober to have my brain controlled by something else. So I became free from sugar and flour almost four years ago. But interestingly enough, and I lost 35 pounds, I have gained a lot of that weight back, but I haven't touched sugar or flour. That is interesting. Yeah, because there's cheese and there's sun butter and there's, so I'm like, oh my God, I see it again and again. And COVID definitely impacted all of us, people that had never overdrank or overate, or if they had, they hadn't been as aware with what they were doing. But sure enough, in the last couple of years, I'm like, son of a gun, I get it. I'm not an alcoholic. I'm an addict and anything I have at every moment, I have the opportunity to reach outside myself for something to comfort something that's actually on the inside. Yes. And it's be temporary. It's the momentary hit of that feeling, which is reinforcing. And it takes so much, you know, this is what I, I teach to a lot of my clients and in my programs, which is in that moment of awareness of I'm doing it again, or I'm reaching again, or I'm catching myself in the act is, can I pause? And the question I invite them to ask themselves is if I'm eating this to try and feel better, what right now doesn't feel good. And just through that awareness alone to check within oneself and build this awareness, like you said, when the children weren't feeling comfortable in their bodies or skins. Like that still happens as adults for many of us, especially eating disorders. There's a huge commonality of feeling really uncomfortable in one's body. And even just recognizing like, I don't feel comfortable right now at all. And being with that and not having to fix it, but expanding your capacity to sit with the discomfort. I mean, that is really like part of the repair process It was about, for me, falling in love with my body, like literally, literally falling in love with myself and physically. And before I stopped eating sugar completely, I went through a phase where I just decided no matter what I have, I'm going to be completely in love with myself and the thing I'm eating really helped because 
I got to the point where I didn't want to have that. You know, it's like the love meter goes up and the destruction goes down. Yes. And like you said, with substances, you're not going to hurt yourself with food or something else if you're in a space of loving yourself or caring about your body. I'm curious, was there anything that helped you shift into like really falling in love with your body? Because that's a hard one for a lot of people. And I, you know, sometimes people are like, do I have to fake it until I make it? Because they really hate their body or are really disgusted with what they see. And it perpetuates the cycle because the feelings of shame or disgust cause them to eat. And then they eat and they feel more shame and disgust. And so it can feel like this merry-go-round with no obvious exit or stop. And to tell someone, well, just love yourself, love your body. You know, they can sometimes want to slap you. It's like, it's not easy to get there. No, no. So I'm thinking back because I actually fell in love with my body before I lost any weight. I was at my heaviest and it's not been something I've really explored, but it was very intentional. So I appreciate you asking it. And it was post-divorce. So my, my divorce really rocked me and caused me to increase the drinking. So I think it was in my early stages of being sober from alcohol and like I literally, I lived in a sober house. I had had a family and a successful business. I mean, had a lot of things, young children. And then I, all of a sudden I'm alone in a sober house with, you know, 20 other recovering young women. And so it was a big shock. And I don't know um, how I started to love my body. I remember just loving my body. And so what's coming to mind though, as I'm reflecting back is I think I was so grateful to not want to die anymore. Like really my bottom was a bottom. And so I think that the gratitude for living started it. And I do remember back getting a pedicure and falling in love with my toes. I have these cute little toes. So the thoughts coming to to mind as I'm listening to you is in parts to fall in love, right? It's you started small, really small and incremental, like finding one thing that you could love. I also did a lot of mirror work and that was really hard. I mean, I would just burst into tears looking in the mirror, telling I love myself. I couldn't do it for the longest time, but I just, I was committed. I believed that it was a thing. I believed that it had an impact on me. And that yeah. if I did love myself more, oh, I know one, some, I, I went to see a speaker years ago who said something that really hit me. She said, she takes a picture of herself when she was about a year old and she puts it on her desk and she was writing a book and she had all this self-doubt. And she said, every time I question myself, I look at that little girl and I say, would you ever speak to her like that? And I just wept this was probably about five years before I stopped drinking and it really hit me. How dare I not love that little girl? Who else is going to love that little girl? So that's certainly not the end, right? That's just the beginning. Just the beginning, but also just that decision, like the power of a decision that it hurts so bad to not love myself that I am committed to love myself and I will stay the course and like really hold this intention that I'm going to figure out. I'm determined to love me. And I think that just decision, the power of a decision is not to be overlooked. Right. So in general, with your recovery journey from substances, for people who are struggling and with the work you offer at Tipping Point and from your own journey, like what personally and or professionally have been some of the key parts of the recovery journey. I know you've touched on, we've talked about the importance of recovering the family, but what else for you and for others have you seen really make a powerful impact in that recovery process? For me, recovery is contagious and addiction is contagious too, right? So the number one thing that I had to have as I look back and why I stayed sober this last time and not the time before, I'm constantly studying, why do I have this today? And someone else doesn't. The number one thing was surrounding myself with only people who are recovering. There's no question that that's what made a difference for me. And it wasn't just for a month. 
Now, what I say to people who are the person to recover or the family wanting to help someone recover, no one will agree to the length of time they need at the time they need it. So stop expecting that. I didn't agree to go away for a year, but I never went back. I not only went away for a year, I stayed longer and never went back. Now, I would never have agreed to that. I agreed to a month and another month. So when we say a day at a time, we're not being cute. We're being real. You really can't. I mean, if I told you to really nail the thing you're working on, you're going to go away for a couple of years. Nobody would do it. But that is what it takes, not necessarily a year or two, but it takes being around what you're doing on a daily basis, because it's too hard to learn the tools when you're surrounded by people that aren't using them, that aren't conscious, that aren't working on themselves, that aren't taking responsibility, that are still mad at you. It's not only just hard, it's like almost impossible. Wow. So I think just being around people that are recovering is critical. Yeah. And some things that you're saying that for me are turning on light bulbs are first of all, around the length of time. I think people come to me and they want to be told, oh, in six months, you'll be better. Or they'll get frustrated. I've been working at this for three months and I'm still struggling. And it's like, okay, expectations. We want to yeah, it can be overwhelming to say, well, realistically, you're going to be at this for a few years. And the reality is you might be at this for a lifetime. You know, the process never really ends, but you're just focusing one day at a time. And so when it's like, hey, we just have to worry about like today and then tomorrow, it can alleviate all this pressure around how long it's going to take. And I tell people a year is going to come and a year is going to go. So how do you want that year to go? Where do you want to be in a year? <laughs> so you can commit to this process and be in a different place in a year or things can stay the same or get worse. And so even if you're not fully recovered, whatever that word means to you, that's not to say that this is wasted time and it's not working. Right. And so what you're describing is acceptance also, expectations, but also acceptance. And so I think many of us, don't accept. Well, first of all, I don't believe we can accept like accepted. (laughs) It doesn't work that way. It comes in layers. Like I've accepted over time. And I also believe it has to do with the degree of pain that someone's in. Unfortunately, as my colleague says, if the foot's not on the throat, we don't want to commit to the long-term thing. And that is really unfortunate. So in early recovery with drug and alcohol addiction, we're often saying, um, this could be your last time, but if you, you know, that you relapse, you could get this for life. But if you think you need to do a little more research, always go back and try it again. We always say, you know, Hey, how, what, how'd it go? Did you, are you still an alcoholic? You know, when somebody comes back in the rooms and so it's really very disarming. And as a provider, you and myself, really frustrating when you see what's possible for someone and they're not seeing it and they're not fighting for it. Like you want to fight for it. I mean, I've been guilty of fighting harder for my clients than they've been fighting themselves for sure. In some ways, I think we need to, because we have strength that we can hold for them till they can. Right. Sometimes we have to mirror to them the truth of what's possible. Cause I wonder, and I see for many people, it's like, really, they don't actually believe that they can get better or that it's going to stick. Most people I work with have this voice that's always like, yeah, but how long until, how long until. And so, you know, that can be one of the biggest barriers I think to have to overcome is just the belief in one's capabilities to heal and for that to actually be their new reality. I think you're that's really straight on. I think that our acceptance of the disease and that it's life is long, long-term. I think the belief in what we can and be can have and be in life is, is long lifelong. You're reminding me of a mom that I was teaching about addiction and we were trying to think of ways. She wanted us to brainstorm ways of how she could be encouraging to her son who wasn't 
finding recovery yet. And I said, well, you could say, I believe in you. I know you can do this. And she said, but I don't. Mm. <laughs> and she said, I could probably write that in a card. And I said, wow, this is really important information for you to have, isn't it? Think about it. Just think about the law of attraction. If you're living with someone who every time they're looking at you and speaking to you, they don't believe that you can do the thing they're asking you to do. What are the chances? And they don't believe. What are the chances that they will? Pretty low. Right. So I think the belief in self is a big part of all the recoveries we're talking about. And how how do you, do you have any in your experience, words that have supported people in starting to believe in themselves? Is it just that you telling them, I do believe in you? And because you've gotten yourself to a place of recovery, it's like you can say that and know that that's possible. Yeah. I mean, it's one of the things I love to do because I do this with families who also don't believe that they can get better from the pain they're living um, and alcoholics. If I'm in a group setting, one of my favorite ways to do that is say, well, just look over at Sarah. Do you tell her she can't do this? <laughs> you know, I love, and they're like, well, I'm not going to do that. Well, do you think Sarah can? Yes. Okay. So why, why would, would it be you, any different for you? Just pointing out the, you don't feel this about others, but you feel it about yourself. Wow. What's that about? And the truth is Sarah, and you know, this too, this is the human condition. This is separate, forget drugs, alcohol, food, cigarettes, sex, gambling, this is the human condition and the awareness that's such a cool awareness to have is that we're born perfect, perfect. And the, the thinking and the messages that get accumulated or that we choose to hold on to are the problem, right? That awareness is huge, right? It distorts our perception of our truth, right? Right. Of our enoughness of our lovability, like that gets distorted over time. And a right. lot of this work is trying to re- bring us back to remembering and rediscovering what's always been there, what's always been true of us. Exactly. That's what recovery is, is it's un unpeeling, un unremembering, or or what is it? Um unlearning the things yeah. that we've learned that are in the way. Yeah. And so I think it there's so many little tools. It's fun to brainstorm ways we help people do that. I also like to ask people what would help you believe what would what would have to happen for you to be a huge believer and that helps them maybe create some actionable things that might really be tangible and then also really reinforcing when they have a moment of belief and you see it in their face hold on let's stop for a minute here's what i see you just saw like really letting them anchor that in because that builds insurance for the future Totally. I always encourage people, we have to go looking for evidence to support that you not only can, but that you are doing it. And it's so easy to overlook all the moments of, oh, I had an urge, but I didn't give into it. Or I had the thought, but I I'd used a tool and to not view those as wins or evidence. And so starting to, to look for that and reinforce. And like you said, anchor that in is so valuable. And just the fact that they're showing up to see you to me says somewhere in there, somebody believes it's possible. (laughs) And and that's important too. You're already on your way because you wouldn't be here in this conversation. If you weren't like, if people are listening to this podcast, they're already on their way. Right. And And it doesn't matter how many times you fall down. It's the picking up and keep, and you're going to keep going. Like we're always going to have some moments of stumbling, and that doesn't mean you're failing or it's not working. No, that's recovery. Right. Recovery, you know, we teach families what is recovery because recovery isn't what people think it is. Recovery is this. It's falling down and getting back up. That's how you recover. Is one of my mentors says, chopping the wood and carrying the water. Chop the wood, carry the water. Chop the wood and carry the water. Right. And it's work. It's effort. It's repetition. It's not easy, but it's definitely worth it when you continue to chop the wood and carry the water. And when you call that recovery, you say, oh, I'm in recovery. I'm not in abuse. You're not. If you're chopping wood, you can't be abusing yourself. Yeah, you're in the process of recovery. Yeah, I love that reframe. Yeah. And it was interesting too, when you mentioned like 
which is so true that sometimes it's like we have to be at the worst pain before we're willing to like stop the abuse or to say enough. It's just so funny that human nature, it's like, oh, if it doesn't hurt bad enough, I'm just going to endure and like keep going or stumble along miserable. And we have to hit that bottom, like you mentioned for yourself before we say enough. And I'm curious if you had any advice for anybody who right now feels like they're at that bottom or really struggling, like what would be the one piece of advice that you would give them for them to begin their recovery? Well, first I want to say bottom, there's so many bottoms and they get to decide if, is this bottom enough? Cause there's another one below it. Ooh. Yeah. yeah. Feel that. <laughs> You think this is bad, but <laughs> you can go lower. Yeah. Do you want it to get worse? And because it can, right? The, there's really only one final bottom. And if you're not there, there are other worse things that can happen. And is this enough? Is enough enough? And even if for that fleeting moment, enough feels enough and someone's watching this, whether whatever it is they're hurting from, you're asking for what what's some advice I would give. I guess I think the first thing someone should do is tell someone. I want someone to grab on to the bottom of my sweater or your sweater or someone else's and not let go. And so for me, that looked like in an AA meeting, hanging out with people and, and going after the meeting to get ice cream. Lots of ice cream at the beginning, actually. <laughs> and it's okay. It saved my life. And so, um, and, and almost, almost pesty, like finding a mentor, a teacher, a board of directors, a, a therapist, um, a sponsor, a lot of it can be free. A lot of it's covered by insurance. Some of it's out of pocket, but yeah, it's a person. So you have to speak it to someone, they have to hear it. And then you have to be willing to talk to them again the next day. That's really, but again, remember my, my, my foundation is AA, two men who had been struggling for hundreds of years, men, mostly men were struggling over a hundred years ago. And two men found that by talking to each other, they got better. That's the history of AA. I mean, there's a whole lot more to it, but it's beautiful. And so that's the number one thing I think people should do. So if they're watching this is, can they email you? Can they email me? Even if they never see us again, telling us I need help. I'm ready. Yeah. And the power of that connection that we are not meant and designed to do this alone. So whatever person or organization you feel comfortable reaching to, to just start that connection starts the process. And, and yeah, I want to, Oh, go, go ahead. No, I you go add to that. You just said, we're not designed to do this alone. I also want to add to that. We're not designed to live this way. We're not here to live the way that bottom is bringing us. We're not supposed to be doing that. That's not why we're here, right? So we're not designed to do it alone, but we're also, we're, we didn't incarnate. I mean, maybe we did for the lessons, right? But you are, you're here, you're worth so much more. Right. And so you can beat yourself up that you're there and continue to punish yourself and condemn yourself and stay there, which I see a lot in eating disorders. Or you can say, okay, except I am here and it's miserable here. And this isn't what I came here to experience or where I came to be. And now I get to take some steps out of this. And I just am imagining being held. It's like, think of us as an infant on the side of the road left. That's what it felt like to me. And I, I wanted just metaphorically and energetically to scoop myself up and hold myself and have, and give myself to someone else to hold until I could manage holding myself for that because so much tenderness has to happen. Yes. And, and you deserve that. Everyone deserves that. And it's capable. It's something that we all can experience. Yeah. It's not, that's not something that's, you know, reserved for a special few. Right. Yeah. Well, wow. absolutely. Thank you, Kate. This is just so stimulating and inspiring. And I'm curious for people listening who are struggling with addiction or maybe have never reached or, you know, they've taken a few steps and fallen and are looking to get back up or, 
you know, wherever they are in their journey, how can they connect with you if they're looking for more support? And what are some of the, the ways that Tipping Point Recovery does serve and, and help families yeah. and individuals? So we are growing and building programs all the time. So maybe when someone watches this, something will be built that I don't even have at this point. So I'm going to tell the places that we have information out and lots of free content because we're adding constantly to it. Um, tippingpointrecovery.com is the website. We have a YouTube channel that we're adding content to. We have Instagram at Tipping Point Recovery and um, yeah, that's on Facebook. And what I'll say is we serve individuals who are struggling and we serve families who are struggling because some they're trying to help their loved one. And we also serve treatment centers who are trying hard to care for individuals in treatment. And they have a family that's calling, that needs help, that is hurting. We are a resource for those treatment centers to be the third party family education and support for the families while the loved ones in treatment. So we really serve all three populations, treatment, individual, and family. And we do it all virtually, mainly. I mean, we have intervention services that are obviously in person, but we have everything's online and over Zoom, over the phone. So lots of support, private support, group support. Yeah. Wow. It's pretty amazing what you've created considering it came from a mistake. Came from a mistake. <laughs> and look at the look at what has grown from a mistake. It's just amazing ways that you're serving and helping these these families and individuals. I know, I know. I, I I've got to think of a way to describe it because mistake is probably not even it. It's by it was by accident. It was not my design. Right. It, it, not- it found you. It just tapped you on the shoulder. Yeah. Hey, we need you. (laughs) Come here. (laughs) Quite a bit. And just to reference, you talked earlier about the healthcare system not working. For a couple of years, I really didn't do much with this, even though I knew what we were doing was working because I felt mad about the system. So it's, it's probably good to close with that because I decided after a couple of years, no amount of me being mad is going to change anything. And I cannot change the whole system. But what I can do is continue to show up every day and make the changes for the families that are willing to be, to join us and and get started. And then we can change the system. Right. But, but yeah, you are actually changing the system and it creates ripple effects. And I have seen more and more evidence of people who, you know, we get into this work because we want to help. And then we get into the system and realize, oh, this isn't necessarily helping the way I had imagined this was going to be. And so I think a lot of people are starting to wake up to this realization that some things need to change fundamentally. Yeah. And so I've just continued to meet on this podcast and in my life, people who are really committed to changing the system. And that gives me hope, just like Tipping Point Recovery and the work that you're doing gives me hope. And so- Thank you for answering that call and creating a very necessary place for people to to find support and help that's safe and where they don't feel like something's wrong with me or no one understands me. And that invites family to be a part of the process. Yeah, thank you. And thank you, Sarah, so much for what you're doing and the conversations. I'd love to continue the chat another time. It's really fun to see the overlap. It's really, yeah. the, really the same. It so, really is. And and as I learn about other forms of addiction or recovery, right, it sheds light for me on, oh, I never considered that, you know, how I get to improve the way that I'm approaching this from an eating disorder or a food addiction perspective. But also there's so many parallels so we can learn from each other and some people are struggling with both. You know, they're really comorbid conditions. And so um, I have one final question that's emerging <laughs> as we're saying goodbye, which is, do you encounter people who are struggling with both? Mm-hmm. And do you find that like one needs to be addressed before the other? Yeah, you you had mentioned this in, in one of our chats. And so it depends if something's more pressing medically or more dangerous. For example, I mean, this is not 
the drug and alcohol and food example, but someone I know is really struggling with food and really struggling with her career. And it made sense for her to switch her career so that she could leave this toxic environment to address the food, right? It's like, what's pressing more? If you're using heroin and IV usage and in touch with fentanyl all the time, and you're also purging, which one could kill you faster, right? So that would be what I would address. But often in treatment as well, sometimes these things are dealt with together. The same. Right. When yeah. you're really looking at the root, it will right. sort of spread to all symptoms with right. time. Yes. Yeah. But maybe the the harm reduction model, it's like we start with the one causing the most harm as like primary focus and target, but there can be secondary benefits that are still coming from that. Right. Right. So it kind of depends. And that would be my, my approach, but ideally we're, di- we're pulling up the roots of it all. Yes. Yeah. And that does take time. Reminder, everybody, <laughs> it's a process. And for most of us on this journey, you realize it's just a life journey, but you have to start and it starts with reaching. So if you're feeling inspired and you're struggling, please reach out to Kate or reach out to me or find someone else in your your hometown or family that you can reach to so you too can start your journey. Thank you, Kate. Thank you. Good to see you. You too. We'll talk again soon. Thanks for tuning in to the Empowered Eating and Living podcast. If you liked today's episode, make sure to follow the show so you don't miss future ones. And if you loved it, then please leave a five-star review so that we can share the love with others who may benefit from listening too. 